You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Comedy Seller Show here on Sirius XM Channel 99, the Comedy Seller Show. My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm the owner of the Comedy Seller. I'm here at the back table, as always, with my co-host, Mr. Dan Natterman. Hello, Dan. How do you do, Noam? How are you feeling? I'm feeling very well today. Um, before I introduce the... We have some the, big guests today, huh? Yes, of honor. We have a, a semi... Uh, become a, He's been on a few times, right? This one, I've only been on once. Only just I've once? Been upstairs twice. But he's fresh off his uh, performance here at the Olive Tree, playing trombone with John Mayer, uh, author for Quillette Magazine and uh, student at Columbia University, Coleman Hughes, and friend of mine, Coleman Hughes, and the guest. He's part of the new intellectual group that Noam is surrounding himself with here at the cellar. You know, Noam is in. That's my biggest credential. That's your biggest credential. And our guest of honor is Mr. Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of of the Social Sciences and Economics at Brown University. I didn't get in there. As an economic theorist, he has published widely and lectured throughout the world on his research. He is among America's leading critics writing on racial inequality. And uh, it's here, it's already. He holds a BA in mathematics, PhD in economics. He's been elected distinguished fellow at the American Economics Association, American Philosophical Society, and U.S. Council of Foreign Relations. And it goes on and on. So it's quite an amazing resume. Welcome, Mr. Lowry. I don't know, um, Coleman. Where do you want to start with Mr. Lowry? I'm, you know, there's a there's a very. Should we, can we start with something that quite controversial story that's in the news this week, or is that something we should just leave alone? I don't know what the story is. What the, the, the Martin Luther King story. Oh. We could start there. You want Dan, Dan uh, wondered if we should even talk about it. I don't know. Do you do you do you have? Is it? I don't have all the facts on that. I I gather that there's new information about his uh, Me Too issues. Yeah. But I don't know the details about it. I simply haven't had the time in the last couple of days. They're they're pretty sketchy, but the the it's it's so upsetting. But um, maybe we can use it to discuss. Um, the, well, there's a, there's a there's a larger issue about yeah, having heroes people have done great yeah, things sure. that might also have done things that, 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 that are not so great that, that if it's true and I think we all hope it's not true or that it's it, it's the least least bad version it could be that is this going to force people once and for all to separate a man's accomplishments from maybe his, his faults as a human being I hope so it's time for that I, right? I think it's past time for that uh, I, as I say, don't know the details, so I'm not endorsing anything right. that he may have done or excusing yeah. anything of that sort. He is on the Mount Rushmore, metaphorically speaking, of the 20th century. He's Martin Luther King Jr. He has a holiday. He has a monument on the Mall in Washington, D.C. He's an iconic figure. He represents the aspirations of African Americans to equal citizenship. He has a Nobel Peace Prize, et cetera, et cetera. So now, say, we find out that he was a sleazeball, that he treated women in ways that they ought not to have been treated, that he did some awful stuff. That's not good. Nobody's saying that's good. Right. You going to take him off Rushmore? I, I wouldn't. Well, one thing I said, said to Noam a few days ago is that, from my perspective, many progressives have been, you know, would, would be happy to have a reason to disavow 
what Martin Luther King said about race. Because these days, if you quote Martin Luther King, or if you paraphrase his message with regard to, you know, if, if you end sentences with, without regard to race, color, or creed, you're actually seen as naive. Like Bernie Sanders a few months ago said something like, we should be, we should be electing politicians based on their abilities and policies, not their skin color. And he was mocked the next night on Colbert's very popular late night show, where you know, 40, 50 years ago, that would have been seen as a very progressive sentiment. So what, what, I, what I predicted is that if this stuff comes out about Martin Luther King, about you know, him laughing as his colleague raped a woman, I think many progressives are actually going to say, this is our chance to actually disavow what he said because we've wanted a reason to disavow what he said for quite a long time. I don't think that's right, Coleman. Um, what they have been saying, and uh, didn't start uh, this year, is that you have to distinguish the king of the Washington March, 1963, from the king of the Poor People's Campaign, 1968, from the king of the uh, Riverside Church denunciation of Lyndon Johnson's Vietnam War, 1967. What they've been saying is, early king should not be the stopping point for king. King was a social democrat. King was leading the movement for genuine equality, empowering poor people, and so forth. So I doubt very seriously that people who object to colorblindness, you're certainly right about that, they do object to King's colorblindness, would want to trash King in virtue of his Me Too issues, since King for them is iconic not merely because of the March on Washington and colorblindness, but more fundamentally because of his challenge to structures of American militarism and uh, uh, colonial, neocolonial, colonial Just to clarify, I only meant the colorblindness part, not the democratic socialism. But it's but King is a whole thing. I mean, if you're going to get rid of King, you're going to get rid of the whole I thing. I think what I'm saying is I think they're going to use it to ignore what King said about race specifically. Okay, we'll see. I think I think that could happen. It could totally happen. By the way, I, I have to say, and this is not just me pulling for something I wish to be true. I find it very hard to believe that it's that he was laughing while somebody was being brutalized. I, I just find that very, very difficult to believe. I can imagine some sort of extremely, I learned a new word called sybaritic uh, environment, you know, sexually charged environment where there's drinking and smoking pot, whatever it is, and something was going on sexually that somebody describes, and something that by today's standards we would not approve of, but more in the Roman Polanski type of, of uh, <laughs> disapproval of kind of the 60s kind of vibe. I, I, just, I just can't I just can't process it. I just can't believe it. It's are, are true. There, are there truths better left unknown? Because you know people need their heroes. Uh, the founding fathers are in that category. We, 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 in a sense, they're they're part of the secular religion, but they were deeply flawed men, especially the the Southern slave owning founding fathers. Are, are some truths better is it better sometimes just not to know because we need our heroes and we need our icons no no i would say it's better to grow up it's better to understand people in the full context of their humanity i do want to know all the facts about thomas jefferson and about martin luther king jr but i don't want to be a you know uh, uh, an adolescent about them and run screaming from the room when i find out that they did this or that i want to view it in the whole context so jefferson's not canceled out because he was a slaveholder, the Declaration of Independence speaks beyond his particular social morality. 
Likewise, Martin Luther King Jr. ought not to be canceled out. And again, I don't know all the facts in virtue of the fact that he may have found it humorous that somebody was doing something in the room next door, which, as you say, Noam, might in 1966 or whatever not have been such as a big a deal as we would make it out to be in 2019. Right. Well, and, 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 and that seems to be your style as I've seen it, which is to look the truth cold in the eyes. And I, I've seen you discuss things like even, you know, other third rails like race and IQ. And I've seen, and Coleman has also this kind of serene, I don't know, it's courageousness or something about him. Like he'll just talk about anything, other subjects that other people really feel are better left not even discussed, no matter which way it comes out. And I guess that's just a, a personality trait of yours. Is that, would you say that's accurate? I'd like to think of it also as an intellectual trait of mine. Yeah. And I would note that I have the benefit, being an African-American, of natural cover so that certain things that I might take up won't automatically lead to me being suspected of being a racist because I've taken them up. Uncle Tom is not so great, but it's better than being called a racist. Yeah, I've, I've heard, I had an argument with, with somebody about something much less serious than that. I don't even remember what it was. And, and somebody kind of was attacking Coleman for being not uh, properly loyal to his people. Remember that? And I, yeah, I, yeah. I was furious. And it was over nothing. It wasn't yeah. anything as, as... No, yeah. But it... And that reminds that reminds me. There's a video a few years ago of you talking uh, with some other people on a panel at the Manhattan Institute, uh, and someone from the crowd asked a question about race and IQ. I don't know if you remember this. I remember it very well. The person who asked that question was named Jared Taylor. Jared Taylor. Oh, He's a notorious uh, a race and IQ monker. He's a white nationalist. Yeah, he is. Okay, then let's call him what he is. Yeah. That he is a, like. Yeah, he's like. I'm, I'm not dictionary picture yes, of it. Yeah, he, he wants white people to live just among white people and black people to live. And he, he is, by the way, he's the most articulate defender of this view. Obviously, I disagree with him, but if you want to know what white nationalists think at their smartest, that's him. Okay, right? what about him? Well, I just think I, it, was, it was interesting to me that that moment hasn't gotten picked up on at all. Right? A, a white nationalist asking Glenn Lowry about race and IQ. It seems... I've shown my friends this, and they're astonished that this happened at a public event and didn't get any more play. Well, let me tell people what happened. So Jared Taylor, the notorious white nationalist, stands up in a discussion about race and inequality and says, uh, isn't there an elephant in the room here, Professor Lowry, about genetic differences between the races and their intelligence? Uh, and is that something you're willing to talk about? And I said, yes, I'm perfectly willing to talk about it. Let me tell you what I think. I think IQ is a real thing. I think there's some evidence that it's heritable and passed on to some degree across uh, generations within families. I do not think, however, that the evidence uh, for racial differences in IQ is substantial enough to have any explanatory role in racial differences in social status in America is valid. And we can go chapter and verse on that if you want. But I'm not running away from this conversation. You know where I live. You know what, I, what I'm saying. And, you know, let's have it out. That sort of thing like that. And the Manhattan Institute organizers apologized to me afterwards for somehow not preventing Jared Taylor from asking, from asking. a question in that forum. But they didn't need to apologize. I'm not afraid of Jared Taylor. All right. Let's, let's get into a few topics uh, on, on race here. Do, can we start with, do we have a working definition of racism? Because so many things are going to be, this is racist, this is not racist. What is racism? How, do you have, what's your 
rule of thumb definition. You know, Samir Harris led off my interview with him of a couple of years ago with exactly the same question. It's what the key it? question, you know. Sorry. Okay, well, uh, Coleman will have his thoughts. I would say um, having a, uh, uh, a hatred or contempt uh, for another person because of the fact of their racial identity, uh, treating people uh, uh, in, in a uh, derogatory or negative way, an exclusionary way because of their racial identity. I would say ascribing to crude stereotypes about uh, the characteristics of people, they're lazy, they're stupid, uh, they're dirty because of their racial identity. That's uh, at least a gesture in the direction of what I would think of as, as racism. What did I leave out, Coleman? I think that's right. I Going back and reading what Bayard Rustin wrote about the topic when they were... You know, when, when he was tell, tell the people who Bayard Rustin is. Bayard Rustin was Martin Luther King's strategist. Uh, he, he was a socialist who organized the 1963 March on Washington, was a prolific civil rights leader, great speaker, great writer. When he talked about what racism was and defined it in his essays, he would always, he would always gesture to the kind of interpersonal I don't recognize you as a full person style of racism. There was, uh, you know, there was really no mention of unconscious bias, which is a separate phenomenon. Whether we want to include it in racism is a separate conversation. There was, there was no, to the extent that systems were racist, they were identifi identifiably and concretely racist. There was this racist policy that we can point to. Here's how it's racist. Uh, there was no racism was not abstract. It was primarily a lack of recognition from person to person, and that that today is seen as not nearly a capacious enough definition. You're seen as naive to mark out such a small space for racism in in, in society now. But that, that's 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 a definition that's most intuitive to me, at least. It's, it's, the, it's the definition that I give in my mind to anti-Semitism. I mean, people can say anything they want, have any thoughts about Jews or whatever it is. It's when I detect that there's an animus, a hatred or whatever you want to call it. That's when I say, no, that's anti-Semitic. You can have a very difficult opinion. And if it's in good faith, then, then how can I how can What about I call Jared that? Taylor's? Uh, he often says that uh, he has not, and he may, he may be lying. I suspect he is, but he often says, I have nothing I wish black people well, but I prefer the company of my own people, and I prefer uh, to be with white people, and is that racist? Well, you've got a lot of black people who feel exactly like that. I don't think the idea that I prefer the company of being with, I'm Jewish, other Jews, I think my daughter ought to marry a Jew. I don't think the idea that, uh, you know, I've got some time on my hands, I prefer to hang out with black people because I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and that's where I feel most comfortable. Uh, you know, so... Maybe saying that about white people is different, and maybe the reason it's different is because of the political implications given our history of saying that. What do you mean? You want to undo the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which has a public accommodations title that says you can't refuse service to people because they're black? What do you want to do? You want to undo Loving versus Virginia, which is a Supreme Court decision that says that you can't have a law preventing white people from marrying black people? Yeah. If you make the Jared Taylor type statement, I prefer to company of my own kind. I don't know that you're not trying to undo those things. And those things were hard fought, second reconstruction, 20th century move needed to give African-Americans full citizenship. Given a history of a country with slavery, 
given the history of a country that goes for a century after emancipation where people can't vote in some states, saying I prefer the company of my own white people kind is not simply a preference for social affiliation. It also has resonant political implications that you might want to single out for sanction. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I would think that Jared Taylor is putting it that way, and he's really kind of hiding the, the, what's really behind. He's, he's like trying to clean it up and put it in a way that he can kind of sneak it through. But I, I think what's smoldering underneath is, is real hate. But let me ask a question here. I know I'm not, not sure. a moderator, but so what about indifference? Okay, what about the idea that I don't give a damn what the Negroes are doing over there on the south side of Chicago? They're shooting each other up. Let them shoot each other up. It's okay with me. I'm not, you know, I don't have any invidious intent. I don't have any, you know, derogatory idea, but I'm, I don't care. Is that racist? Well, I think, I mean, if, it, if the indifference is motivated by race, but, of course, people are indi- we're an indifferent species to that which we don't see that doesn't directly concern us. Uh, we're indifferent to a lot of things. If you're indifferent to the south side of Chicago, but you're also indifferent to the suffering of white people, you're just an indifferent jerk, but not a racist. There's also, but if you're indifferent to, to, to only the suffering of black people, then yeah, I would qualify sure. that as racist. There's also, I, I sense, a certain indifference that comes from modern politics where people are so, uh, that they feel that they can only weigh in on the issue if they have the correct uh, opinion about it. And when they don't feel that they can pretend in that way, they're like, you know, like, fuck it, you know, let, 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 let them handle it themselves. I'm going to move on with my life because I'm just going to step in. In, in something here that, I, that I'm not going to be able to wash off. and Because I feel that way sometimes, even though I don't shut up. But <laughs> you feel like, you know, you, you just... You, it, you, there's no point in having a conversation because you're supposed to come to the conversation already with the right opinion. And, and that can lead to a kind of indifference, no? Yeah, that's a good point. I see it in my classroom with students sometimes who sit quietly through a whole semester of talking about mass incarceration and race, talking about affirmative action, talking about uh, police brutality and whatnot and don't raise their hand a single time, and you can't tell me these kids are not smart enough to have some views, but they're probably just keeping their heads down because they don't want to get them chopped off. And, you know, it could be somebody like me who uh, truly in his heart, I mean, would would want nothing better than to see every human being doing well. I mean, this sounds so corny, but, like, very, very, very earnestly, that's the way I feel. So then if you want to say, well, what about these, these black kids who are not getting into Stuyvesant? And I might think that, well, you know, I, and I do think this, that it's good that these tests don't budge because if they change the test, they're just going to obscure the problem. The only reason we know about this problem and the only reason we might be, be um, moved to do something about it is because we see the harshness of these test results. So, but then I might get attacked for that. And I'm like, you know what, I'm not even getting into this anymore because if the only, I, I want to help, but the only way I can help is by saying the wrong thing so I become indifferent. But I guess I'm not really indifferent. It's more just frustrated. It's a, yeah. And uh, maybe we can use that to get into it. What do you, what do you think about these tests and uh, Stuyvesant? Well, can Rock we just science? a brief background for, for the listeners? The, the, uh, Mr. Lowry can give it. Okay. All right, so the exam it, schools. Is it Dr. Lowry? It is Dr. indeed. Lowry. Professor sorry, Lowry, Dr. Prof- Lowry, or Mr. <laughs> Lowry, they all work. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't need to be forgiven. Uh, oh, the Stuyvesant and uh, 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 Brooklyn Tech and, and Bronx, Bronx High Science. School of Science is all this. So uh, these are special schools that you get into in New York City public school system through excelling on an exam. The exam uh, is an instrument that measures what the kids know. Uh, black kids are not scoring as high on the exam as other kids, and so very few of them are getting admitted. I think Stuyvesant 
had a class of almost 900 kids, and there were like seven blacks yeah. in the class coming in in the recent year. So this is obviously a problem. It's a public school system. These are gateway institutions, these schools into higher education at the Ivies and so forth. And you've got a underrepresentation of African Americans. What I think, and there's a controversy, and it's been suggested that we do away with the test uh, here in New York City in order to uh, ensure and use other instruments for selecting kids in order to ensure you get more black kids in there. I agree with you, Noam, that the test is a messenger. The issue here is what do people know? The test is telling us what they know, and it's telling us what they don't know. That's a problem. There's no doubt about it. You could call it a civil rights problem if you want to. I wouldn't object to that. The problem needs to be addressed frontally. The kids are not, on the average, for reasons that we could go into, and I don't think it has to do with their genes, acquiring mastery over material that is necessary in order to succeed in this society in the 21st century. I mean... If your math and your science are not strong in this society in the 21st century, you're not going to be able to participate in the cutting edge of what's going on. If the test is telling us that black kids in New York City don't have those skills, something needs to be done about that pronto. But getting rid of the test is not a solution to that problem. What can we do about it? Well, we can enhance the opportunities at an earlier stage in education. Uh, it's the, and I think we need to be clear about who are we. Okay, So there's the public we. What can the public uh, sphere do about it? What can government and policy do about it? They can invest in resources. There can be summer enrichment programs. There can be tutoring. There can be et cetera. And then there's another we, which is the communal we. What can African-American families, community organizations, uh, and so forth do about it in terms of uh, devoting themselves in a different and more intensive way to uh, investing in their children's acquisition of these skills? I'm talking about after-school programs. I'm talking about church basements on a Saturday morning. I'm, I'm talking about uh, 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 billboards and posters that say, you know, this is what excellence is. I mean, if we are prepared to extol the athletic achievement of somebody on the basketball court or the football field, we can extol the intellectual achievement of somebody who belongs to our group with whom our kids can identify in the classroom, at the blackboard, and on the, uh, and, and on the computer screen. So, you know, I mean, I'm giving a short answer to what's a deep question, and I don't have all the answers to the question, but developing the human capital of these kids, uh, starting early. I mean, it has to, obviously, it has to start early, which can be abetted by public resources, but which also, I think, puts some onus on families and uh, communities to, uh, to nurture their children in a different way than what we're doing. I just want to point out very, very briefly at the point of irony here you're talking about uh, the necessity of math and science skills to succeed in society. We're here at a comedy club where uh, <laughs> we see a lot of successful people with few, if any, math or science skills and uh, it is so, some, 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 some perhaps uh, uh, literary skills. Well, we can't all be comedians. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And if we could, then maybe we wouldn't have to focus so much on math. That way, Coleman, do you have uh, what, anything what, to add to let me Let me add to the question. Add to that. Is, is one of the problems, and, I, and I, the reason I'm going to ask this, because I, I went to New York City public schools, and I've also uh, at certain times had like uh, young black women who were mothers, single mothers, working for me, struggling, is, is with their children, is one of the problems that, um, that they're there's too many black kids who are good black kids, smart black kids, kids who would do their homework, who are, who are properly motivated, do well in school, who are trapped in schools where they are odd people out. Or maybe even if they're just like half the class is really good and the other, other half of the class is difficult and doesn't behave and doesn't do the homework and, and brings the 
the pace that the teacher is even able to teach down to a to a crawl. Where I always and I've seen this happen where they don't want to leave anybody behind. So so the most difficult cases set the pace, but then the smart kids and the gifted kids suffer from that. And I feel like there should be a way, maybe charter schools are what this is. Maybe the success of charter schools is really just the self-selection of these families to get their kids out of these crappy schools into a school where they know the atmosphere is different. But every young kid should be able to go to a school which has a proper academic atmosphere where they're not hostage to bad behavior and disrespect to teachers and all that stuff. Is that part of it? I, mean, I think that's certainly part of it. The question is how much. I think one of the things that, make, that makes me pessimistic about this conversation is the importance of peer effects. I think obviously parents matter in many ways, but I think Judith Rich Hill's whole life was kind of devoted to, to this point, and it also gels with personal experience. The effect of peers in shaping what you become and determining the social status games that you're inclined to play, like the ladder that you're climbing and, and like the rubric for what it means to be a, a, a high status such and such, like peers have such a big effect on that. And I, it, it's so, I feel like there's such a deep, there's such a deep desire to have a policy solution from the top down. For, for problems that are, are deeply located at the peer-to-peer -peer level and norms that spread in a way that is kind of mysterious and bottom-up and we don't really understand totally how culture reproduces itself. It's a very, very messy question. And you have, you know, and, and yet we can observe the differences. So when, when the, the New York Times you know, editorial page talks about Asian, poor Asian immigrant families in New York who scrimp together, scrimp on food to pay for test prep to get into Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. Like, clearly that is, that's a phenomenon that's happening to a greater degree in the Asian American community, black community. And but, you know, couldn't, a black, did, couldn't a black family have a right to say, listen, it's not fair that the only way we can get our kids into this school is if we scrimp on food. Like, they, like if they're going to take it to that level, it's not really fair that we have to you know, we have to follow, raise it's the bar just, that high. It's not just unfair for blacks. It's unfair for the Asian kids that he's talking unfair about. Unfair for the it's Asian unfair. kids themselves. But, uh, but, 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 be that as it may, but be that as it may, the Asians are doing it. Yes. And the black man is doing it less. What is also unfair in, in your is, if, is if we, you know, it, uh, you know, at least on its face, it seems unfair to penalize those kids by not, by reducing their numbers. I mean, it, it almost seems like every option is unfair to somebody. So the question is what, what trade-off can we form? But, you, you wrote a book or a collection of essays called One by One from the Inside Out many, many years ago, right? And at least the implication of that title, it hints at or suggests a, like a bottom-up cultural process that has to happen one by one rather than, not to say that there are no policy solutions, obviously, but like, how, do you, how do you see the status of that project really panning out? Because this is something I struggle with. I... Okay, well, that's a big question. Let me make an observation first. The observation is that in the context of the exam schools here in New York City, the numbers of blacks getting in are actually down substantially from what they had in 20 or 25 years ago. More and Asians now. It, there's very plausible 
uh, argument that the reason for that is that the kind of tracking and gifted and talented programming within the schools that these kids are going to that would allow, I don't know, the top 15 or 20 percent of them to get uh, specialized exposure to developmental instruction that would give them a real shot at being a, a competitive uh, has been pushed by the side, that that has uh, found disfavor with a kind of egalitarian philosophy about education that says you can't have gifted and talented and you can't have right. tracking. So that point, I think, is worth noting. I think another point is worth noting is that disruption in the classroom is a very real thing. When I talk to public school teachers who have to teach in low-income uh, communities, not only in minority communities, but especially so, they complain about the fact that maintaining order in the classroom becomes a full-time job and to the detriment of kids who have come in prepared to learn, ready to learn, e interested and eager to learn, but uh, not having as much of the teacher's attention as they could get. So I want to mention those things. Now, as for my 1995 book, One by One from the Inside Out. <laughs> Available on Amazon.com. <laughs> uh, which won the American Book Award uh, for that year, et cetera. Sure. I mean, we're going back 25 years. Sure. Uh, I was saying that at the end of the day, nobody is coming to save us. Okay? You can have public policy up the wazoo. We can argue about it. I'm for thinking about public policy for good, open, inclusive, egalitarian public policy to that effect. But there's no substitute for parenting. Right. There simply isn't any substitute for that. So without trying to put the blame on hard-pressed single mothers who are working two jobs and have got three kids and are scrambling trying to keep everything together, who wants that job? That's hellish. That's really, really very tough. I'm not blaming her. Okay. On the other hand, if we don't somehow find a way to uh, provide those young people with a framework that's developmentally affirmative and that gives them the uh, attitudes, values, habits, practices, as well as the knowledge that they need in order to be competitive in society, we're never going to solve this problem. So yeah, when I wrote that book, I was gesturing in the direction of the idea that you know, the civil rights movement is over. The year was 1995. Civil rights movement is a, is a matter of history. We still have a huge problem of racial inequality. Nobody is coming to save us. Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, left or right. Nobody can substitute for things that only we can do. And raising our children is one of those things. How does the, all the incarceration play into that equation? In, I think, uh, extensive and complicated ways. So incarceration, uh, in the first uh, instance, is a removal of people from society. You don't think that has an impact? Deaths. You take people out of society. You have a available uh, male-female ratio that is uh, much lower than uh, much uh, lower in terms of the available for maritable partners and so forth than it otherwise would be. Uh, jails have a culture. People don't stay there forever. They go for two or three years and then they come out. When you've got a constant revolving door of uh, mostly men going in and out of these institutions, the patterns of behavior that are necessary for them to survive inside the institutions end up then getting reflected in the communities to which they return in terms of the norms and, you know, guys come back, they're buffed up bodies, they got their tattoos, they're walking, you know, they're tough guys, you know, they become kind of heroic figures to these young people and that's not a good thing. Uh, so, you know, I mean, mass incarceration or over-incarceration is a big problem. It's a problem not only for blacks, it's a problem for the country as a whole, but it surely factors into the, where, into the where situation. Where are we going wrong? Talking. Who are we incarcerating that we shouldn't be? I think we're incarcerating people much longer than we need to. Our sentences are too long. 
the drug uh, issue is always mentioned, and it's important, but it's not nearly as important, I think, as, uh, as people sometimes uh, uh, make it. But the war on drugs, I think, is wrong-headed. It has been wrong-headed and ought to have never gotten off the ground in the first place. Um, I, I think uh, pretrial detention is a serious problem. Now, this is incarceration, although it's only for months or maybe a year or so while people are awaiting trial. But these are people who have not been convicted of anything, but who are nevertheless being held in institutions. Um, I think that uh, the idea that we put people in prison and we just lock them up and close the gate and walk away, we don't worry about any kind of developmental, any kind of affirmative, any kind of rehabilitative uh, programming uh, in prisons is, is also a problem. Uh, it's a big subject. It's a tough one because if, they, if, they, if they're not incarcerated, they can do damage in the neighborhoods as well, right? So, the, the, I mean, I guess the people who really are antisocial. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. You have any thoughts about that, Coleman? While I looked on my, well, okay. So then let's let's follow all the leads. So then, and then, what about the issue of the police? Now, Coleman, I know is pretty um, pretty skeptical of the idea that blacks, innocent blacks, are being shot in in numbers much higher than the white, if at all, than than white people. I don't know how you what. What was it? Was that a fair characterization? What, what was the man's name? Yeah, Fryer yeah. was the horror. Roland, uh, Fry. uh, Roland Fryer is yeah. his name. So I don't know what you want to say about it. Well, I, I want to say a couple of things. Yeah. The, the police kill about 1,200 people a year, recent years, in the United States of America. That's a lot more people that, even after you adjust for population, are killed by police in any other you know, uh, rich, democratic country, Northern Europe, and so forth. So police in the United States are killing a lot of people. Secondly... They kill a lot of white people as well as black people. Blacks are uh, 1,200, maybe 300 a year are black people who are being shot by police. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. It varies from year to year, but that's roughly the case, about a quarter or so. Uh, and uh, most of the people who are killed by police are white. What Fryer found in the study of a particular city, Houston, uh, using methods that are not beyond dispute, but that I think are professionally defensible, is that when you take account of all the circumstances in which police and citizens encounter each other, what time of day, what part of town was the policeman called because there was a report of a person having a weapon, did the person indeed have a weapon, did they resist arrest, and blah, 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 that using statistical techniques, you can control for these other factors, and the likelihood that the police would use deadly force against a citizen was no higher if the citizen was white than if the citizen was black, other things equal. Uh, he also found in the Houston data and in other data, including stop and frisk from the New York City, that the police use of less than deadly force, cuffing people, forcing them to the ground, using a taser, uh, and so forth, was more likely to be used against an African-American citizen than a white citizen, other things equal. So his study, I think, has to some degree been mischaracterized in saying that he, you know, basically found that the police were, you know, racially unbiased. He did not find that. But he did find in Houston, in the years in which he was looking, that the likelihood of deadly force being used against the citizen was no higher once you took account of the circumstances if the citizen was black and if the citizen was white. I have a question. Um, so this is one of... I think my big disagreements with my, my father, we were talking about earlier, uh, about the source of bias, the source of racial bias, particularly unconscious bias of the sort that might lead a white police officer to 
be quicker to pull the trigger or forget deadly force for a moment, what, what Fryer found. Be quicker to rough up a black subject. Perhaps be quicker to fear a black subject. The question is, where does that... Well, let's posit that the bias does exist. There's a racial bias that most whites, maybe even most black cops also have to the detriment of black people. Where does that bias come from and how does that bias get eradicated? As I see it, there are two substantially different answers to that question. The first answer is that society, through myriad ways, is programming people to have anti-black biases. It's the movies you're, you know, you're raised on. It's the yeah. ideas that seep into you via American culture. Or, and I don't think that's completely wrong. But there, there's a second story which I think accounts for far more of the bias, which is that the human mind is a pattern-seeking machine and it's a pattern-seeking machine that is completely politically incorrect so that if it detects a correlation between skin color and behavior, it will seize on that correlation and form what we call a bias, somewhat helplessly, that then you know, is, is kind of impossible to eradicate because it's impossible to eradicate until the underlying correlation is attenuated so where do you think can i add a third thing sure sure the third thing is what what people accuse the cops of which is simply hatred well yeah i mean yeah that that's also kind of implausible i'm not saying there are no cops that just straight up hate black people you can always find crazy white supremacists in an organization organization that big but like my, my question is we all want to get rid of bias how do we do it do we do we tell people to be less biased? Do we do anti-implicit uh, bias training? Or do we forget all that or expect less of that and go for the underlying correlation? I don't think it's as black and white as you might be making it out. Pardon the pun, uh, Coleman. <laughs> but, but I think there's something to what you say. I understand you to be saying that if indeed blacks are overrepresented amongst people committing violent crimes in a city, who can blame a police officer for being more cautious when he pulls a car over in a young African-American is driving a car because after all the chances in the policeman's mind that there's a gun underneath the seat or in the glove compartment of this kid's car is higher than if the kid had been white in the policeman's mind because the background information is that in this particular city disproportionately the people who are you know shooting each other and who are carrying guns in their cars are black and that's certainly a rational response on the policeman's part I would not call that implicit bias I'm not sure I would even want to call it bias. Rational stereotyping might be a more accurate uh, way of framing it, but I don't think there's nothing that can be done about that. I think, rather, there is something that can be done about that if we decide that we want to do something about it. And let me give an example. So in my classroom, I've got kids who come from all different races and ethnic groups. Uh, I'm an economics, economics professor. i got a lot of Asian kids in my classroom. i got a lot of smart Asian kids in my classroom. So a kid walks in the door, he raises his hand, he's an Asian kid. Am I going to react to that kid based on the fact that I think he's probably statistically smarter than the typical student? I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt if he gets a bad answer on an exam because he's an Asian kid after all and so on and so on. No, I'm going to train myself to treat every student in that classroom more or less in the same way with the same benefit of the doubt and the same expectation of excellent performance, overcoming my instinctual reliance upon a rational stereotype because the service that I'm providing as a professor 
would be significantly diminished if I allowed those feelings and thoughts to creep into my practice. You're telling me I can't train a police officer to say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, regardless of the race of the person who's in the car? Sure, the cop is going to be more afraid. He can't control his glands and, and whatnot, but he can control the tone of his voice. He can control the facial expression that he brings to the window, and he can control the words that he uses when he interacts with the citizen, and that's his job. Yeah, and by the way, I've seen cops treat, well, not just, not just African-Americans, just people terribly. And I've seen, but having said that, you know, when cops are, are tracking down suspects who fit a description of something of a violent crime that was committed, yeah. then what you're describing is, is much more difficult because then the white guy they pull over, they're not actually worried about, and the, the black guy they pull over, they might actually be worried already. This, well, might, sure. if the this cop might be is, the guy. If the cop has got prior information that the assailant looks a certain way, he's yeah. going to treat people who look that way differently, yeah. of course. I just wish they would pull people over less. You know, I was very against this years ago. I was against the seatbelt. Law. Is that my phone? I'm sorry. I was against the seatbelt law. I said, it's just another excuse for the cops to pull people over. And because, you know, that's human nature. Like, they, they, they said, oh, I, now I got, a, I got another reason I can, because they enjoy it. I mean, that's, that's the natural sadism. I also suspect that, um, like, I always suspect that whatever the number of pedophiles are on the population, it's higher among daycare workers and whatever the population of sadists are in America yeah, it's higher among police because that's those are the professions you'd be attracted to if you have those personality flaws you know so we know that you're not we're gonna get the police to be nice all the time so and this kind of goes with your war on drugs and all that you know they should be pulling people over more as a last resort than it seems that they do and every I you don't tell that with your own workers not to engage people physically, if at all possible. Yeah, I don't know if there's any right. analogy to be made there. But. And, and I, well, I, uh, let me just say this, Noam. They're yeah. pulling people over in part as a pretext for being able to look in the back seat or look in the trunk or smell the breath of the person or yeah. see how they react. Because they're, they're really trying to find not traffic violators. They're trying to find uh, robbers and yeah. I think and, they should uh, stop doing whatnot. that so much. I, every, every, I'm not defending it. Yeah, I'm just no, saying... Um, so, so, and I felt for a long time, I mean, years ago, when it's, before but, Black Lives Matter, when the shootings, for, when, with Amadou, not, um... Yeah, Diallo. Was he's one with... Um, yeah, yeah uh, the guy uh, reaching for his phone yeah, in the yeah, vestibule yeah, of a building, yeah. 44 bullets or something yeah. like that. But no, where, didn't and, you say that... Let me, let me just get my point again. That I said, you know, when the cop shoots somebody... He has to go. He has to. He has to give up his weapon. He's gonna go through a, a, a procedure. He may lose his badge. You have to be a real kind of murderer to shoot somebody in front of everybody. So, so my gut was always, he probably panicked. He probably was scared. He probably didn't just decide to murder somebody. On the other hand, every black guy I know has a story of when they were alone in the police car, or alone with the cop. Then, and when the cop knew that no one could ever know what happened, and that if he came out bloodied up, say he he resisted arrest, that that's when the real ugly sadism comes out, and the way the cops speak to uh, black guys, and I've seen it. Um, I think this is where the real resentment of the police comes from. I think if the police would treat black guys decently in general then people would be ready to give them the benefit of the doubt when they shot somebody. But the everyday humiliations, and people are only human. Who, it doesn't, even if you can rationalize it, you know the reason, you understand the crime rate is high in my community. You can even understand, you know what, if I was a cop, I probably couldn't even act any differently. 
still, as a human being, it wears you down and, and you lash out. And say, well, why don't you? We need to, they need to learn to be more polite to the police. Good luck with that. You, you know, your adrenaline kicks in. People are only human. Yeah. Cops are only human. I'm not defending bad cops. I'm just observing. It's not an easy job. Okay, so you're going in day in and day out, and you're dealing with the dregs of society, and you're going to crime scenes, and you're seeing people at their worst. And there's a racial coloration to what you're seeing in many parts of American society just because of the demographics of poverty and urban poverty and so forth and so on. So it's only natural that a cop might develop a certain kind of uh, contempt, a certain kind of you know, uh, disgust, a certain kind of dislike. But here's my point. That's natural for an individual cop. Cops are an institution. There's training. There's a, a, a discipline. There's a compensation. There's an institutional structure. And that's what needs to be mobilized in order to counter the natural human tendency of somebody who has to sweep up the, the debris, the detritus of uh, social mm. failure on a daily basis. I'm talking about cops. Yeah. So that they don't become monsters uh, and, and end up doing the very thing that you're saying people uh, who have to deal with <laughs> we, them object to. We've been joined by Josh Johnson, a new up-and-coming comic here. Oh, we, Perry L., our producer, wrote up a little. Uh, Josh Johnson is a comic and writer for The Daily Show. His first album, I Like mm. You, is out now. He may be seen regularly at the Comedy Cellar. So this is uh, Dr. Lowry. And my friend Coleman Hughes, hey, that I've told you about in the past. Talk in your mic for a second, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Talk. Josh, did you ever get... Talking talk to Mike? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever get the talk? I read not... This is something I just heard about the past few years, about black children being told by their parents how to act in front of police officers so that they don't get shot. Yeah, yeah. Did you I ever get talk. that talk? Yeah. At, at what age? Uh, I think it was eight. And, and what did it consist of, if I may? Oh, it was just like... Um, Pretty much like do what they say, but slowly. It was kind of like, <laughs> it, it was legit like, look, they, you, we know you. Like my parents would be like, we know you, so we know that you're not going to give anyone a reason to approach you or, to, or whatever. So even if a cop thinks you did something or, or whatever, just be calm and be, you know, like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Answer honestly. Don't like get indignant or you know like even if they ask you for something like let's say i was driving and they asked you my driver's license it's like almost repeat back to them like okay i'm getting my driver's and this is all like a lot of it was too early because i was like eight so i was like i i shouldn't be driving oh my god if a cop cop pulls me over it's like he's gonna see that i'm eight like no black man ages that well you know what i mean and so you know it was it was just this like calm like just Always, uh, you know, act like you are um, innocent and you'll be easier to be perceived as innocent because they might stop you because they think that you're not, you know? There was one time I was uh, driving. Well, my dad was driving. I was maybe 13, 14. And cops caught him in a speed trap, pulled him over, uh, license registration. No. I was I was holding um, my phone in my lap. And there were some pieces of paper above my hands. And the cop asked me to remove the piece of paper and show me what I was, what I was holding in my hand. It was my phone. Um, and, you know, it was a low-stakes situation, but there was obviously, you know, it was probably 2014 or something, 20, 2012. I was thinking, is this because I'm black? Um, 
on the other hand, it just seemed like that would be a rational thing for a cop to do is to see everyone's hands. If I were a cop, I would probably do the exact same thing. Um, uh, but you know, I, I and, get, let the record show that Col- I met Coleman's dad. He is he is like the, the most un unthreatening human right. being you could imagine. But here here's the, the the upshot of the story is the cop so clearly because it was it was right around Trayvon Martin, perhaps before Michael Brown, but you could see on the cop's face that he was mortified as a white cop to think at the idea that I thought that what he did was because right. we were black. So he didn't give us a ticket at all. He was so mortified, you could just see it, and he was apologizing. Just based on I, perhaps my facial expression, which I think was interesting. So I want to have a few... Listen, this is this is this kind of a frank conversation about race that people are interested in, but after, I just want to ask some, some questions about economics in a second. But uh, I want to ask you um, uh, uh, something that I've thought for a while, and I don't think this is disrespectful, but on it. Um, I've thought for a while that growing up black in America, for the most part, is by definition a psychologically damaging experience. No matter how you do it, no matter how well you try to do it. Um, is, is, is that, you know, they say how uh, men think about sex every 15 seconds or whatever it is. Like, how many seconds go between the time that a, a black man has to think about the fact that he's black? Uh. I mean, sometimes I forget I'm black until white people remind me. Until like, like sometimes I'm just like going through my day, and then something happens. I'm like, oh yeah, I might be seeing different. You know what I mean? Like I didn't. I don't know if I filter everything through my blackness. I'm just like Josh most of the day, and then something will either happen, or someone will say something, or someone will ask my opinion. I'll be like, oh yeah, I've, I've been black all day. You know? Because <laughs> it seems from a white guy's point of view, it seems like always on the tip of the the brain. Maybe it's just in an interaction with me because I'm white. How often are you thinking of yourself as a Jewish person? I would uh, let me answer that question for Noam, all the time. No, 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 no. no. But I, not in a negative way necessarily. He loves it. No, I, I, I don't think it's comparable. Uh, I, it's not. It's not something I think about all the time. Well, you, you think about it a fair amount. Well, listen. There may be some uh, comparable experiences between. Being Jewish you know, and being black. We've all got our, our identities. I mean, there's nothing wrong with thinking of yourself as a black person or a Jewish person, per se. It doesn't have to be burdensome. It can also be a source of pride and, you know, all of that. Uh, but there is this thing. I mean, you know, you walk into the restaurant, the maitre d' seats you at a table by the kitchen. You look over across the room and you see an open table by the window. Right. Okay? Now, if you're not black... The probably the thought doesn't occur to you that the maitre d discriminated against you. You probably think somebody's got the table by the window reserved or Or they're just whatever. an asshole. Yeah, or just, the maitre d yeah. just having a bad day or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're black, it may be, for many of us, that you can't let go of the idea that this maitre d, you know, you're seething at the idea that the maitre d put me at this table by the kitchen. You're, you know, you, you've, you feel like you, you know, you've been victimized somehow. And now you're carrying this burden, and that's got to have a, uh, you know, over the years, uh, it's got to take its toll. Well, I'm thinking uh, even from the time, psyche. even the time, like I have young kids, and they're actually mixed. Their mom is Indian, but they, but they have barely any concept of what their race is or color or that it matters or any of that. But I would imagine if I was raising black children by this age, like seven years old, it would be very deep within their psyche racism that we could be victims everything on television all the you know and 
What was that your experience? I don't think Josh? it was. Isn't that damaging? It wasn't there when I was seven. It wasn't. I don't think it was there when I was seven. No, like here's the thing. I would get talks. Like I would get like, hey, you're gonna be seen as different. And I also went to like a school where I was like, there were some years where I was only the the only black kid in the class. You know what I mean? So like Thanks. things like that, like would remind me that I was like different in some sort of way. But I think I think damaging might be too um, too strong. To yeah, too strong of a of a way to put it because none of it uh, like hurt me and like even the like spots of racism I experienced when I was little because I grew up in Louisiana like little spots of racism that I catch like throughout living in Louisiana I still chalked up to like being in Louisiana and not reflective of like my blackness if that makes sense like I was in my head I was just like oh if I were in a different place right now this thing might not happen there wasn't this like um, inevitable gravity towards my blackness that I was going to have a hard time here and a hard time here it was like and I was a pretty like affable kid too so I was also like well, you're affable enough as an adult, I dare yeah, say. Yeah, pretty affable. I, I have a yeah. question. So, so with, with on, the capital A. On the one hand, I, I very much identify with people who have a problem with authority. Like, I can totally imagine myself if I felt I was being unjustly treated, just completely losing control. Just like I, I think I told you a couple of weeks ago, I was I was, uh, you know, in in the. Um, Dwayne Reed with my girlfriend who's, who's Pakistani and a Pakistani dude came up Drop to dead her. Drop gorgeous, by the way. Thank you. Um, uh, came up to her, started speaking in Urdu or whatever. And yeah, I, I don't speak Urdu. She speaks. And he's just talking to her or whatever. And I said, what, well, what, did, what did he say? He, he said he wanted to know who you were and why, why I was with you. Right? And for some reason, this pissed me off so much. Right? It, it is like this, this Pakistani dude doesn't think that, doesn't want a Pakistani woman with a black guy, maybe it was just with any guy that's not Pakistani. Maybe oh, it's one of those right. things. But it was also like South Asians and Arabs can also be very specifically racist against black people sometimes, and without the white guilt. So it, it can even be less masked. And something about this just incensed me. And I didn't, I didn't want to like blow up in the middle of Dwayne Reed. So, I, you know, I have fairly good emotional self-control. So it was fine. On the one hand, I could totally see there's just an inherent thing about human nature in that respect. On the other hand. I think of the fact that how, how much data there is testifying to the fact that it's harder to get into college if you're Asian. And I'm thinking to myself, why, why aren't Asians raising hell? I mean, there, yes, there's, there's a lawsuit right now, but imagine how much hell black people would raise if black people were treated formally like Asians are in, in the college admission system, for example. And that, so there's the human nature on, on the one hand, but then there's also the degree to which the specific subculture you're from programs you to get mad or not based on mistreatment. And I wonder how much of my own psychology or the psychology of blacks or Asians or whatever group is, is actually not just the natural human uh, urge to be treated with respect, but is also itself cultural programming. Well, well I do think also that Asians might be less comfortable in America, they might have the attitude, well, we're guests here, we've only been here one generation, we shouldn't be making any noise. Black people have been here since as long, longer than anybody, except, I guess, the, the English, you know, and, 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 and they feel uh, very much at home and, and very willing to uh, express their, their grievances. Uh, sometimes, you know, I think Jews were like that early on, that we didn't want to, you know, hey, you don't know, it's waves. not our country, don't make waves. Brother, Coleman, does this remember the, the, the thought experiment that, that we we started? You and I started to get into, and I never I never followed up. But I was wondering, as a thought experiment, one time, said, "What if everybody woke up with a kind of amnesia where they had no knowledge of the 
past history of racism. And all they could learn about was how they experienced life prospectively. How, how racist would the average black guy think the world was if he never knew that there had been slavery, never knew about Jim Crow, just had to base his opinions on the world today? And, and oh, why is that interesting? Because, because <laughs> Coleman reacts to this, this guy, and, and part of that is because he's very quite aware of, of the racism with a capital R as a, as a historical... Um, chapter and it can build up in people's psyche and create a very uh, a very sensitive outlook. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to be uh, no, disrespectful, no. but the reason mm-hmm. I ask is is because, of course, you not see the world as being as racist if you had no knowledge of slavery and Jim Crow and all of that, and you looked around at the relatively open relatively non-discriminatory society that we live in. There might be a little bit here, a little bit there, but it wouldn't be any big deal if that's all you knew. But the thought experiment that you suggest somehow overlooks the fact that the history lives in our present uh, time in many different ways. I mean, there are institutions that are, to some degree, shaped by that history. And so forgetting about it, while we can imagine... Which institutions are you referring to? well, I'm, I'm talking about the uh, about the structure of the African American family. Well, I, I'm, I'm talking about the gender uh, dynamics within uh, the black community. I mean, I just give one example of that. Okay, so seven in ten kids born to a woman who's not married. You think that doesn't have anything? No, I don't mean to put this personally. No, that no. certainly <laughs> has something to do. Yeah. With a long history of the uh, dispossession and enslavement of African Americans in the. This is not saying that it's somehow white people's fault that black people don't marry as much as they might and raise their kids a certain way. It's simply saying that the disadvantages that African Americans experience are linked to uh, a history which is easy to bracket if you're just doing a thought experiment, but is socially and politically significant. I think the thought experiment is useful insofar as, at least for me, it gets me thinking about the way so there's history there's all the facts that have happened all the innumerable grievances that have been inherited all the innumerable harms that have been perpetrated and then there's the way we conceive and talk about those facts and it seems to me that there is something unique not just there's a there's something unique about what happened to black people in America but there's also something unique about our approach to it uh, you know like the fact that nobody, you know, everyone I come to and, and, and talk about how Japanese Americans weren't allowed to own land until the 19, you know, 1952, they don't even know about this fact. We don't memorialize it. We don't, uh, we don't dwell on it. We don't dwell on it. Uh, you know, obviously, another example would be the, the way in which Jews have memorialized the Holocaust. It's never forget. Right. There are there. Are, obviously, there is something unique about the Holocaust, but there are also many, many genocides that people just don't even know about. So there is a way of talking about, and and arguably, you could argue that one negative consequence of the way the Holocaust or slavery has been, has taken outside importance, is that it fuels a kind of identity politics where every criticism of the Israeli government is seen as anti-Semitic because don't you know about the Holocaust, or every criticism of black culture or uh, you know, what is seen as racist because don't you know about slavery Jim Crow the point is that 
we're doing something to the history. It's not just that we're looking at the history objectively there and reacting to it appropriately. We're adding something to it. We're putting some topspin on it with black history in a way that we don't with others to the to our detriment. Yeah, I feel like if everyone fell asleep, I mean, I wasn't part of the initial thought experiment, but I do feel like if everyone fell asleep, ever got the history involved with racism, we'd wake up and just have to figure out how to be racist again. Like, we just wake up and there'd just be, like, new, very fresh slurs. You know what I mean? Like, it wouldn't be... A, because because it's a thing about the individual. And it's a thing about, like, how you are raised to a certain degree. So if you woke up and forgot all that, maybe, you know, a problem person wouldn't have a problem with Jews or black people, Asians, whatever. But, it, you know, within... Um, sort of like an inferiority dynamic of an individual, that's why you have people saying, like, this is an affirmative action hire, because in their mind, they believe that if this person just didn't even exist at all or it never applied, they'd obviously get the job, which is a bit of hubris to begin with, you know? So it's like, I don't think it would take long for all those things to creep back up again. We just wouldn't have, we wouldn't be able to learn the thing if we would be recreating it ourselves. I, it, just, it just occurred to me where we started that. It was during that, uh, the blackface thing where, where there was this big uh, um, separation between like, some white guys. And I just want to dress like Michael Jackson, you know? And, then, and black people were, were bringing in this whole history that yeah. these white people were barely aware of or if they were aware of, they, they couldn't really identify with it and, and create this tremendous difference in reaction. I think which was a, a a distortion of reality from the historical memory. It's just interesting to me. Maybe I think jo- Josh brought up an interesting yeah. point. If if all the history were forgotten, would we uh, recreate it? Have we evolved at all? And to what extent is the history keeping us on the straight and narrow? You know, knowing that's interesting. No, that. knowing you know when people say, well, if you if you forget the past, you're doomed to repeat it. Is the past instructing us? Can I to, ask, to can, not repeat you know, that? You know how Jews that? always say the Holocaust can happen again? We never say slavery can happen again. Isn't that interesting? Well, I never, why, yeah. why is that? I don't know. I think Th- we've They're both got, pretty bad. We've got too big and strong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there's... Maybe there's, economically we don't need slavery. slavery. I don't yeah. think the Holocaust can happen again. Actually. Actually. I, I, I always thought that was a stretch. Okay, Mr. I want to ask you about protectionism. And forgive me for that, this whole thing. <laughs> I'm an economist, everybody, in case you didn't yeah. know. So I asked Tyler Cowen, and he, he said, so he said protectionism is, is always bad. And, my, and I asked him, I said, even if the Chinese were using slave labor to build cars, and consequently our auto industry went out of business, would we still be better off? And to my surprise, he said, yes, we would still be better off. Do you agree with that? Well, we'd be better off. We wouldn't be better. I'm better off because cars would be cheaper, and because if you're just counting money... The cheaper the car, the more money you have to spend on other things. But all those people will be out of work. Well, they'd be out of work doing car making, they but they'd be in else. work doing something else, something else that we want to do, like giving me a massage. So, so, <laughs> so, this, so this is the economist's faith, that there will always be something else. People will always devise something else to do. Well, you know, slavery is bad on a moral level, okay? So, so you know... Uh, uh, Human trafficking that brings women who are willing to sell their bodies for money, you know, uh, quote, are we better off, close quote. People who want those services are better off, but we're not better for having, having done it. Right. But on the protectionism front, I don't agree with Tyler in that, um, and I heard this interview, um, I think there's a strategic element. I think one, one of the things you're doing is it's not a perfect competitive market. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with a behemoth over there. I'm talking about China. Yeah. They don't play by the same rules as a perfectly competitive market, so it's a bargaining situation. You know, you mess with me, I'll mess with you. 
You want something? I got it. I want something that you got. Let's see how we're going to make a deal. So in that context, protectionism is the first step in an ongoing negotiation to try to resolve who's going to get the better of whom uh, in a bilateral situation. Yeah, I, I asked him that. Does he think this is Trump's endgame or is it just a, it's a bargaining uh, position looking for leverage? And I think he said he wasn't sure. He, 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 he suspected that Trump actually was protectionist in his heart. I don't know Trump, and I don't know that. It might be right that he's protectionist in his heart, but it looks to me as I'm watching this that this is a bargaining game and that we're looking for, and I'm and expecting to hear before November 2020, some kind of uh, deal, some I'm kind of uh, resolution. I'm with you. Is Trump a racist, by the way? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> but, but, I, I, you know, <laughs> silly question. Silly question? I think it's a silly question. The, the, the personal proclivities of Trump, I mean, is, is, is Trump free from any critique that he might have handled in racial etiquette more effectively? No, he's not free from that Definitely critique. Not. Is Jesse Jackson a racist? No. Okay. You can find incidents where Jesse Jackson has said things. Jesse Jackson friendly with Louis Farrakhan, blah, 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 blah. I'd say, I'd say Jackson, Jackson has more racial resentment than Trump has anti-black resentment. What's sillier, Noam's question about is Trump racist or the thought experiment? <laughs> here's, here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that what really matters are policies. Right. Uh, not, not the uh, personal proclivities of the, uh, of the president. And I see the racist charge as a political move on the part of his opponents uh, to, to try to make him unacceptable to a critical component of the electorate. Yeah, I never asked my plumber, like, hey, do you mind me owning this house? Like, it's <laughs> like, you kind of just hope they'll do their job, and, and that's, like, the main focus. I, uh, we have to wrap it up, because uh, Dr. Lowry's going to see a, a comedy show around the corner. Good. Uh, what, what, what is, uh, what's on the top of your mind these days to, to you know, if, if you were going to start your, do a podcast later of your own, what would you talk about first? Uh, uh, I'm talking about affirmative action a lot these days. You're, and, and, you're and against it. I'm kind of against it becoming a permanent fixture. Yeah. I'm not against it in the abstract. I'm not against it on uh, constitutional principles. What I'm against is having African-Americans to require dependency on a special treatment in order to be included in the most selective and competitive intellectual venues. To me, it's just another version of the problem we were talking about with the exam schools in New York City, which is to say, if African-Americans are not getting admission to Harvard or Princeton or Stanford at the numbers that we want them to gain, sure, you can cover that problem in the short run with affirmative action, but if you build that in as a permanent practice, you're basically uh, putting African-Americans in a horrible and undignified situation because everybody knows the real currency of the realm is intellectual performance, and everybody knows that African-American presence is to a large degree dependent upon exempting them from the judgments that would be applied to others. That's not equality, and I think equality ought to be the goal. Did you see, there's, there's just, you reminded me of it, there's a thing where there are some schools that are going to start, like, um, adding points to your SAT based on, like, your level of... Adversity not, points. Adversity, adversity points. yeah, I saw that. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that's going to make, like, the smartest kid in class rob a liquor store just to, like, <laughs> with his dad's gun to make sure his dad goes to jail, and now he's from a one-parent family, you know, and he's got the test grades, yeah. No, apparently, they, they, Thomas Chatterton Williams 
who lives in France said that they instituted this in France and then found out that something like 40% of the kids with adversity scores were rich kids gaming the system. Yeah, That's yeah. always going to be the case. So, my, you know, when I, I went to Penn Law School and there was, there, was, um, there was a heavy affirmative action there. And I remember very clearly that there were, there were a few black uh, guys and, and one woman in the class who were really smart and kind of in the thick of things and basically indistinguishable from Talking many, about my dad? <laughs> like, <you're, laughs> They're about the same age. Indistinguishable from any other student there. And then there were like six or seven kids who were there who, you know, couldn't answer the... the they were clearly in over their heads. And, they'd, and they all dropped out by the end of, of the three years. And... It seemed like all they succeeded in doing is 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 um, making the accomplishments of the other black people in the class uh, look less credible. And I, you probably agree with that, but I, I really saw it firsthand. I was like, we were going on interviews. I'm like, what can these what can these law firms think when they interview this girl? I remember the girl who sitting next to me who you know couldn't answer the most simple questions in class. Why this is not helping? Yeah, I do agree with that. Uh, anecdotes should not be the basis for making broad social policy, but they can be the starting point for doing so. Yeah. Uh, and like I say, the goal needs to be equality. Uh, the story in the New York Times not long ago about a law firm announcing a, a crew of partners that were being elevated to the position of partner. There were no blacks amongst them. And the response was a firestorm of protest. Why are there no blacks? And uh, some people say, you read down into the bowels of the story, well, because the uh, associates that we're bringing in were who were black were disproportionately not competitive, and we had to weed them out because when you make somebody partner and you give them a stake at the bottom line, you know, you got to know that you're bringing somebody in who can really pull their own weight. And unfortunately, the fact of low LSAT score and low GPA in college is predictive for everybody, not just blacks, of how well they're going to do in law school, which is predictive for everybody, not just blacks, of how effective they're going to be as associates in law firms. And, and you know, and I'll say that, I'm going to say this, now I guess we'll wrap up. I think there actually is a real racism also at play there because partners are also uh, dependent on to bring in business. True enough. And uh, very high-end, you know, there's a lot on the line. Yeah, it's clubby. They'll, and, and they'll get skittish about, you know, is this black partner, and this affirmative, I mean, it's, it's an ugly cycle because then he's like, well, is he, is he there because of affirmative action? I don't think I want to give my, I don't want to risk it. You know, I have too much to, to lose. So, I, you know, these, these are tough problems, right? There's no easy answers. You, even if you had a magic wand, you might not be able to make them. That's why right. it's at the top of my agenda, things to think about and write about these days. All right. Dr. Lowry, it's, it's been a pleasure. Can, Thanks, can we just plug uh, very briefly uh, the new Live from the Table Instagram uh, put together by our own Periel Ashenbrand, our producer. Uh, it's at Live from the Table. Okay. Also, please uh, email with your thoughts about the podcast at podcast at, what is it again? Podcast at ComedyCellar.com. Po podcast, I always forget that. Podcast at ComedyCellar.com. Uh, Any thoughts about Noam's thought experiment, you can, <laughs> you can write in, or just general questions and comments. Uh, Coleman, I, I, by the way, are you doing I, a podcast? 
I'm trying to. I, I get a little tongue-tied sometimes, but I think the thought experiment is is not as silly as uh, as uh, you think it is. Dan. No, I didn't think it was uh, that silly, <laughs> but uh, I always like it when somebody uh, uh, puts you me. in your place, so, uh, and uh, it's it's fun to see. Do you tweet, Dr. Lowry? I hope not. Tweet, Twitter is horrible. Uh, I do tweet. I do oh. Facebook, and I have my own podcast. It's called The Glenn Show, and you can find me at YouTube. The Glenn Show, and Coleman is a regular on Quillette, and uh, at Cold Coldman. At Cold X Man. Cold X Men. Yeah, and uh, you can find me on Instagram at Josh Johnson Comedy, and then at the Cellar. I have a spot right now. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, uh, break a leg as actors say. We don't say it, but 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 a lot of non-comics will say to me, "Break a leg," because they don't realize comics don't say that. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.